Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Megan Doherty and myself are back for another season of Picard. In this series, it's Picard Season 3, which will be the final season of this great television series. In this series, we will go through each episode, detailing the synopsis, taking a look at some of our favorite scenes and discussing general themes and looking at key Easter eggs. I know you'll enjoy because that's what heroes do, Picard Season 3. Episode 2, Disengage. This large ship is called the Shrike, and Picard manages to prevent this ship from transporting Jack off the Helios, but it then captures the Helios itself in a tractor beam. Back on the Titan, Seven of Nine persuades Shaw to intervene and Crusher is transported to the Titan's medical bay while Picard, Riker, and Jack Crusher are all brought to the bridge. The Shrike's captain, a bounty hunter named Vodic, reveals that Jack is an intergalactic criminal with a large bounty on his head. Shaw has Jack arrested and intends to turn him over to save his crew despite the protestations of Picard and Riker. Jack escapes from custody and attempts to transport himself over to the Shrike in an effort to save his mother. But Riker helps Beverly to the bridge, and when Piker, Picard rather, sees her, he realizes that Jack is his son from their marriage. Knowing that Picard will not hand over his son to Shrike or Vadik, Shaw orders the Titan into a nearby nebula as a delighted Vodic gives chase. Back on Aladdin's Prime, Rafi's handler orders her to stop investigating the attack, but she meets up with a Ferengi criminal named Sneed and in hopes of finding those responsible. Sneed forces her, or she agrees, to take narcotics to prove she is not an undercover agent. But then Sneed double-crosses her and almost kills her. But Rafi's handler shows up to save the day. Who is her handler? No one other than Mr. Worf. So, Megan, this episode should have been titled The Big Reveal. Why was this episode The Big Reveal? Because after a great deal of interpersonal and political and onboard drama with the young Jack Crusher being imprisoned, escaping, trying to turn himself into the bounty hunters, presumably to save his wonderful mother, and then all of the captains and admirals and first officers um, arguing back and forth about what is to be done, and Shaw is fed up to the max with why are these old farts, their own terms, not mine, coming into my ship and causing all of this trouble. And Picard gives the only reason that's going to change Shaw's mind, and that is this young man is my son. And that is the big reveal. Apparently Jack Crusher is Picard Jr. With hair. (laughs) With hair. (laughs) He'll never look at his hair the same way again. (laughs) One other thing is this is the episode that we meet Mr. Worf. So why don't you set that scene up and why it was so cool throughout? Absolutely. So Rafi had, in the last episode, been doing deep undercover work to try to find out who had been stealing and then circulating one innovative new weapons of various levels of destruction. And she is hoping to, there's, there's a time limit on this. She has a Starfleet handler, but these weapons are going to be used and cause a great deal of damage. She tracks down a lead to a Ferengi arms dealer of some kind called Sneed. This is 
she has discovered that the weapons had been deployed. So there was, in a really cool scene, a Starfleet, I think it was an intake and training academy, was sucked down into the bowels of the Earth and then dropped down from the sky above where it had been dropping, killing and injuring many people. And then after Rafi realizes she has not gotten the information in time, is horrified by this, but her handler says, disengage, don't take this any further, it's done, we'll deal with it later. And Rafi says, absolutely not, I'm going to go find this out right now, immediately. So she goes to the Ferengi arms dealer, warlord, gang leader, whatever he is, and needs and is trying to bluff her way into getting the information that she needs to confirm that he has or has been distributing these weapons, is given the terrible choice of having to prove that she's not Starfleet by taking the drugs, which she does elect to do, despite her history of addiction, and then is overcome by these horrible chemicals, is about to pass out, about to be killed, and then is saved and rescued by her handler, who it turns out was Mr. Worf, who looks great in gray hair. <laughs> I loved everything about this. <laughs> Very distinguished. And here's what I loved about it. He was attacking them with a batlick. He's still using the batlick, and it's still the just incredible weapon of the Klingon. What about Worf working for Starfleet Intelligence? Because at the end of TNG, Worf is back on the Klingon homeworld, and I believe he's an ambassador. And now he is, in fact, in, in one, I think there was a reference to Section 31. Now, Section 31 is a not necessarily a deep reference, but a deep reference and a very evil reference that we have seen, we saw in DS9, and then we saw in one other of the Star Trek series. But would you ever think of Worf as part of Section 31? Yeah, please remind me, Section 31 is the intelligence branch of Starfleet? It, yeah, but it's like the bad intelligence branch, like the really bad people, not like, you know, waving the flag CIA. <laughs> it's like the really bad guys in the CIA. I just, I was surprised to see him in that role. I just, maybe we'll see some explanation of why. And you're right. He looks so cool. And it was so great to see him back. What about the interplay between Shaw and Riker and Picard? Does it get better? Or does it get worse? It gets better. I think it gets better every time. And just, he's so uninterested in all of the things that made Riker and Picard and the whole crew interesting. And I think what was really interesting to me is that I feel like Shaw's playing the party line a lot more. I think Shaw is mainline normal Starfleet Federation. And I think because we know these characters who are the rebels and they go off and they break the rules and they bend the rules. And we consider that maybe normal for Starfleet, but it's probably not. not it. And so I think his frustration and just lack of interest in being like them was really interesting. I think maybe it's a more an institutional disapproval of these people that they have to call heroes because of public opinion. So I think that might be something that they explore more going forward. And again, like we said last week, he's just such a relatable character. Not like I relate to personally, but like, I knew that guy. He's right, but a total jerk about it. <laughs> just, I, I it was so great. Not a bad guy, just a jerk. It's so interesting, the sort of evolutions from TOS to TNG to the movies and to now that you just hit on. Because in the first NG movie, there was a reference to Captain Kirk, and I think it was Picard who said space was so much bigger then. So they're looking back as Kirk as the true frontiersman. And you hit it exactly, I think. Shaw looks at them and basically says, your time has passed. You were, you were it in your time, but 
Starfleet is more mature. The Federation is more mature. We don't cowboy around. We may celebrate frontier days, but we don't cowboy anymore. <laughs> exactly. But yet, when he realizes Jack Crusher Jr. is Picard's son, he pivots on a minute. Which, it, and I can't help but feel like that is so endearing. Like, absolutely endearing. I, I just, yeah, I love him as a character. I don't want to have dinner so with he, him. I really enjoy watching <laughs> And then the nebula. Uh, we've seen the nebula, uh, a nebula used as uh, throughout every episode or every series of Star Trek, going back to mm -hmm. TOS in the movies. My personal favorite is the Wrath of Khan, where they go in the nebula to, to shake Khan. But uh, my favorite is the Voyager episode where they're running low on replicator supplies, and Janeway looks at her nebula and says, "There's coffee in that nebula." If you can get coffee out of a nebula, you don't need anything else. <laughs> And when there's a dicey situation in the nebula in Star Trek, we're going into the nebula. <laughs> but this nebula is a little bit different, as we find out. And at, at in this episode, it struck me, is this nebula actually a living creature? Not We've had nebulas, either black holes or sustained gravitational pulls. But this one, with the shock waves and the vibrations and other things, it actually reminded me of in... Star Wars: A New Hope, which I call one, and my daughter calls four, when they when they fly into the dinosaur's mouth, and they say, "This thing is alive." I began I began to wonder, is this nebula alive? Now we'll have to explore that where that takes us in subsequent episodes. But this was clearly a different type of nebula. So, in addition to your relationship of coffees and nebulas, what else did you see in this nebula that intrigued you so much? I was, the nebula play is always really interesting. And sorry, because usually it's about hide and seek of some kind, because you can't easily be seen in a nebula. I didn't get the characterization of it. I thought it was kind of proximity to something that was known to be dangerous that was causing most of the problems, but it was less dangerous than Vatican the Shrike. Uh, I thought it was more, you know, this is the hostile environment in which we find ourselves rather than conscience malignancy. Let's talk about the Shrike, because I think it was in episode one, Vatic allowed the Titan to scan the Shrike. And in that scan, they found more weapons than they had ever seen in one ship. Hilariously overpowered ship. Like, you would yeah, not buy it in a video game. <laughs> including one called an isotopic weapon, I think, which they just knew was a really big, bad weapon. And in episode two, we get to see some of the impacts or the effects of these weapons. At this point, and you hit it right on the head, why is this ship so overarmed? It's just beyond belief the number of photon torpedoes, phasers, isotopic weapons, and all other weapons known to the Federation are in one ship. Okay. Any thoughts at this point on why? There's two possible theories that I have, or there's two, I think, possible reasons it could be. I think one, they are out playing in a very dangerous part of space. They're outside of Federation space. Maybe it's really lawless. Maybe there's a lot of damage and you have to be the biggest dog in the yard if you want to not die. The other is more fun and I hope this is what it is. What would a cartoonishly bad guy have except the most comically overpowered shit possible? <laughs> I love it. I love and like, it. And why why would like the crew who are in these creepy masks with their horrible like chittering why is that necessary? Is that necessary on ship when no one else can see you? I don't know. Is it to enhance the evilness of the environment for your cackling boss in her throne? Boy I hope so. See, I thought those were different life forms. I didn't appreciate them as masks. 
Maybe, maybe there are different life forms. Maybe it's a, maybe a, an encounter or, or a breathing apparatus. But I thought it, 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 if that's the case, why do they have this wonky human captain? I'm interested in learning more. I guess I felt a little bit like you that, it, except this was just a the biggest, baddest pirate ship in the galaxy. And somehow they had created this, and she was flying the Jolly Roger. At this point, she didn't appear to be answering to anyone but herself. And then, and this is, in this episode, I really took a big distaste to Jack. And part of it was when she recited the crimes, and she said that part of his crimes were on the planet of Andoria, which is the planet of the Andorians. The Andorians are probably the biggest fraudsters in the galaxy. And if you've engaged in fraud against the Andorians, you're one hell of a fraudster. And it had to be really, maybe even we're talking the sting kind of level. But I just thought that was really interesting. But let me explore this with you because I was really intrigued by Jack's name, Jack Crusher Jr. Why on earth would Beverly name Jean-Luc Picard's son for her deceased husband? And I really thought about that. She must have really been mad at him to do that. Oh, I didn't get that. I, did. I thought it was really sweet, actually, because Wesley had already been born, I understand, when Jack Crusher died. So there was no need to name right. him. But now Beverly has another child. Oh, finally, I can honor my beloved spouse in a way that will carry him forward with me. And obviously there was something going on. She didn't want Picard or anyone else to be in her life. So there would have been no, she had no intention, it seems like, of letting Picard know he had provided the genetic input for this child. So <laughs> there would be no point in honoring him, but she was able to honor this spouse who she clearly still loves carrying around his ashes 30 years later. I thought it was a touching name. Okay. There was one cookie. We saw it just for a few moments, but I absolutely fell in love with it. And I have to talk about it because it was the name of the shuttlecraft. And that was Savik or Savik who it was Spock's protege in The Wrath of Khan. And then she turns on him, and he is very hurt. But I thought that was just so cool. I love Savik. When the movie came out, and I thought she was a great Vulcan, and I had great hopes for her. Those hopes were dashed <laughs> in the third movie, but I thought that was so cool. And that was really, for me, the biggest cookie although albeit just a short scene but honoring her she was honored with the naming her name on a shuttlecraft any cookies that really stood out to you that are you enjoyed in this one like i say i love how they are so consistent with the naming and the world that they're building they name shuttlecrafts and schools and institutions exactly the way we would today but perfectly in world i just think that's generally great didn't have any other particular cookies just really enjoyed this episode and this one it was so hard not to press keep playing at the end of this one, but I wanted to see these episodes fresh for our conversations. So I'm waiting them out. We have some time and we can both watch episode three. So I hope our <laughs> listeners will join us. Happy Friday, everybody. Our... <laughs> That's when we're recording for the record. Next time will be episode three. I am Tom Fox. And I'm Megan Doherty. Thanks, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the award winning because that's what heroes do. I hope you'll join Megan and I again next week when we take up episode three. Also, if you could subscribe, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to it, we would greatly appreciate it. Because That's What Heroes Do is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.